available on digital media, iTunes podcast, smartphone apps, and from the online website. This is Outlook, the talking newspaper for Coventry. Hello and welcome to Outlook. I'm Stella Roberts and this edition is being recorded on Wednesday the 8th of February 2023. Coming up, Margaret will be telling us about the Litchgate Cottages in Trinity Street. Bill has part two of his piece on Carnegie Libraries and Elaine has been looking into the history of Coventry Society for the Blind. We learn about a flood in St John's Church from Keith and Ali reads a story entitled The Cat and the Trifle. Sarah interviews John England of the Resource Centre's IT group and talks to some of the people who use it. We also have our usual items, sport, postbag and news from the Resource Centre. But first I'll be reviewing the past week's news with Elaine. Outlook News Coventry City of Culture Trust faces a difficult financial position with ongoing cash flow issues after recently holding talks with administrators. The Trust is overseeing a three-year legacy programme in Coventry following the 2021 City of Culture Year. Accounts recorded in March 2022 for the end of the financial year showed a funding shortfall of around £1.5 million. In addition, the wage bill totaled just under £3.8 million and a £1.2 million increase from the previous financial year. Coventry City Council helped the Trust with a £1 million loan last year. A Council spokesperson said, Our year as UK City of Culture brought many positives, including securing over £90 million in external funding to deliver the much-improved public realm work in the city centre, an investment in many of the city's cultural and heritage venues. However, we are obviously concerned by the emerging news of the further financial challenges that the City of Culture Trust faces. The Council added it is in discussion with the Trust and its partners about these challenges, as they seek to find solutions to minimise the financial impact to deliver the legacy the city needs. A trust spokesperson added, We continue to proactively work with our partners, stakeholders, funders and creditors to find solutions to these challenges and thank them for their support during this period. The trust's work continues with our first legacy commission, Cozy Creative, continuing this February, as well as captivating visitors in the multi-award winning life and work of Frida Kahlo at the Real Store. Youngsters from a local primary school got their wellies and spades out as they took part in some tree planting at Longford Park. Pupils at Longford Park Primary School planted trees as well as learning about the natural world and protecting the environment. The event was part of Coventry City Council's pledge to plant a tree for every Coventrian and the youngsters were joined by Coventry North East MP Colin Fletcher and the Council's Cabinet Member for Climate Change, Councillor Jim O'Boyle. Mrs Fletcher said it was great to see the children getting their hands dirty by helping out, adding they were amazingly knowledgeable about trees and how to properly plant them. 
The school planned to return to the park to plant some more trees in the coming weeks. Councillor O'Boyle added, These schemes go a long way both to helping achieve our aim to plant a tree for every resident in Coventry, but also underlines and emphasises our commitment to tackling climate change in our city. Young people are the future of our city, so to see them getting stuck in bodes well for that future. Business and tourism leaders in Coventry believe the city's new prehistoric resident, Dippy the Dinosaur, will roar the local economy to new heights during its three-year stay. The Natural History Museum's 292 bone, a 26-metre-long cast of a replica Diplodocus skeleton, is set to be unveiled in the Herbert Art Gallery and Museum on February the 20th. Visit Coventry's Managing Director Paul Jones said Dippy's arrival was a real coup for the city and would provide a boost to tourism. He added Dippy would attract thousands of new visitors to the city and provide significant benefit to Coventry's wider economy. Coventry and Warwickshire Chamber of Commerce Chief Executive Corrine Crane added Dippy's arrival presented a fantastic opportunity for businesses to capitalise on the footfall that would be generated. To have this famous landmark on our doorstep for a prolonged period is especially pleasing as it creates the potential for businesses in the city to tap into a longer-term income stream to help with ongoing issues such as rising costs. The original skeleton was discovered in Wyoming, USA in 1899 and its UK-based model was first unveiled at the Natural History Museum in 1905 where it stayed for 112 years before going on tour. Dippy has also appeared in TV programmes and blockbuster films such as Paddington and Night at the Museum 3. Singers from across Coventry and Warwickshire are being urged to add their voices to hundreds of others during a special concert at 7pm on February the 11th. From pub to pulpit at Coventry Cathedral will turn folk songs into hymns as part of the show which will involve the whole audience. Singers will join a cappella folk group Broom Dasher, Instrumental, Trio, Coracle, the Cathedral Choir and Organ for the rousing concert. A free afternoon workshop will take place beforehand where singers will learn a folk song. From pub to pulpit is the only official touring event marking the 150th birthday of Vaughan Williams, one of the nation's favourite composers. After Coventry, it will head back on the road on a 20-day tour until the Three Choirs Festival at Gloucester Cathedral in July. The tour has been picked as a highlight of the Vaughan Williams Festival year by The Times, The Guardian, Gramophone and the Living Tradition Folk magazines. Visit universe.com slash events slash and then the next bit's all hyphenated from pub to pulpit tickets hyphen capital H seven X six one three for from pub to pulpit tickets which are ten pounds and fifteen pounds. 
Vaughan Williams was a well-known collector of folk songs and he borrowed song tunes he collected from labourers around the country for music for some of the best hymns in the 1906 English hymnal he edited. In the final part of the concert, Broom, Dasher and Coracle take the audience on a musical journey, starting with the folk song, going through dance variations and climaxing with everyone raising the roof with full-blooded renditions of the hymns. They include To Be a Pilgrim and I Heard the Voice of Jesus Say, Transformed from the Folk Songs, Our Captain Calls and The Murder of Maria Martin. Residents from Coventry have spoken out about the new plans for the south of the city and are calling for something more purposeful that will make a difference. The new City South scheme will cost an estimated £450 million and demolition work will start later this year. As well as a variety of different shopping outlets and the public realm stroke event space, the scheme is also set to include a cinema, restaurants and new homes. There will also be an area for a hotel, a co-working space and a medical centre. It has also been announced that the Lytton Tree Pub in Coventry will be closing its doors in February as the building will be demolished under the new plans. The venue has acted as a safe space for many people in Coventry, especially the LGBT community, but Coventry City Council said it is open to new business proposals. Maria Prothero, who attends Coventry Central Hall Poetry Group, and has lived in Coventry all of her life, said the new City Centre South proposals need to make a difference. She said, I think in the City Centre they should have places for families and a place for the elderly, something purposeful that would make a difference to our community. They need to put it out to the people of Coventry to decide what they want in their city. It needs to be a place for the visitors where people say, let's go to Coventry. I was pulled into this community centre by accident. I did not even know about it. But when I found out what was going on here, I was mesmerised, because we need more places like this. Plans for the major city centre regeneration were launched in June 2020 by property developers Shearer's Property Group. A spokesman for Coventry City Council said, City Centre South is a 450 million private sector investment in our city centre, which will create new homes, retail space, leisure facilities and more. We have worked closely with all businesses and we will consider any and all business propositions made to us. Coventry Children's author Aaron Ashmore's books will now be available for youngsters to enjoy and learn about the city's history at St Mary's Guildhall and Coombe Abbey Hotel. Aaron has written books such as The Time Travelling Coventry Taxi, which he co-wrote with son Oscar, and Lady Godiva's Birthday Suit, among others. He joined forces with No Ordinary Hospitality Management, which runs the Guildhall and Coombe Abbey, during National Storytelling Week. Coombe Abbey spent the week which ran between January the 28th and February the 5th looking back on 10 centuries of history 
From its founding by Cistercian monks in 1150 to its fate in the dissolution of the monasteries in, in the 1530s, Mary, Queen of Scots, was detained at the Guildhall in 1569, while in 1847 Frederick Douglass advocated the end of the slave trade on stage in the Great Hall. Aaron said, There is so much history to be discovered across Coventry and really exciting that our books will be in place for people to enjoy at two incredible venues to build on what they learn at St Mary's Guildhall and add to their experience at Coombe Abbey. It would be great to see lots of young visitors and their families finding a moment to leaf through one of the books and hopefully learn something about their city and the incredible people who have shaped its identity. Consultation is set to begin over plans for a large solar farm in the north of Coventry. The proposed farm would sit on a 103-acre site close to the M6. The land is owned by Coventry City Council and is currently used for farming. As part of the plans, options are being considered to allow farming to continue on the site. Coventry City Council say the farm could provide enough green energy to provide 7,650 houses with power with an annual saving of 7,080 tonnes of CO2 compared to using fossil fuels. The authority has also invited people living nearby to a drop-in session so that they can find out more and ask questions ahead of a formal opportunity to have their say when a planning application is submitted. Councillor Jim O'Boyle, Cabinet Member for Jobs, Regeneration and Climate Change, said, The world is facing a massive battle to address climate change, but it is one we must all rise to. This idea of a solar farm fits our climate change ambition, and it will provide reliable and sustainable clean green energy, while being sensitive to the natural environment. This idea goes hand in hand with our other green projects, including plans for Coventry Berry Light Rail, all electric buses, and our drive to install more on-street charge points. Of course, solar isn't new for Coventry. We have been installing roof-mounted panels for years. We have solar panels on many of our own buildings, ranging from libraries and offices to social care centres and schools. But this is a good next step and one that will see us generate even more clean energy. We will be working closely with the tenant farmer and with local people to ensure they are involved every step of the way. A plan to move more than 100 asylum seekers to an old Coventry student accommodation has been blocked by the City Council. Government contractor Serco will not be able to house people in Quadrant Hall for at least a month after the council used its planning enforcement powers. A senior councillor said the decision wasn't taken lightly, but the council were left with no alternative. Councillor David Welsh, Cabinet Member for Housing and Communities, said, Specialist health services are already struggling to support asylum seekers in hotels across the city. Further arrivals will require the commissioning of additional health provision for which the source of funding is unclear. He added, 
I cannot stress enough that the issue we have is not with the people that would be placed at Quadrant Hall, many of whom are fleeing terrible circumstances that we can barely imagine. Serco currently uses three hotels in the city to provide temporary accommodation for asylum seekers, he said. The number of people living in these hotels is 520, the council told the local democracy reporting service, LDRS. Councillor Welsh also said that the council weren't consulted on the plan to use Quadrant Hall to house more asylum seekers. This decision to use the building as a hostel was taken with no consultation with the City Council and it's not clear how long it will be used for or what services, if any, will be available to support those living there, he said. However, a separate source told the LDRS that the Council was consulted over the Hall's possible use to house asylum seekers over the past year. The source also claimed that during a site visit by council, police and health officials, they were given detailed explanations of the services that would be provided. Commentary Council's enforcement action was taken on the grounds that Quadrant Hall doesn't have permission to be used as a hostel. The legal notice will stop Serco putting people in the hall for an initial 28 days, the council said. Councillor Welsh also criticised the Home Office and suggested the Council may have to bring another judicial review against the Government Department. As a city, we are proud of our record of welcoming migrants and asylum seekers, but all parts of the country must step forward and play their part, as currently Coventry and the West Midlands take a disproportionate amount. Incredible Coventry couple Chris and Claire Norman said they were incredibly grateful for the city's support after their month-long guided charity run raised almost £1,900 for the Coventry Resource Centre for the Blind. Chris, who is blind, and wife Claire, who is visually impaired, pledged to run 250 kilometres throughout January to raise much-needed cash for the Resource Centre. But with the support of sighted guide friends, the pair smashed all their targets, running around 250 miles each and raising nearly four times their initial £500 target. Chris and Claire have received plenty of support during their challenge, including from the Earlsdon Running Club and Good Jim Coventry. Chris said, The month has been so much fun. And we've met some incredible people on our journey. The whole experience has been astounding. We've been really lucky. And so many people we didn't even know have been so generous, especially during the cost of living crisis. The CRCB helps blind and visually impaired people across the city by providing long-term practical, emotional and social support to enable those living with sight loss to live as independently as possible. The couple met at the CRCB, getting married in 2019, and Claire has recently become a trustee. Claire added, We'll definitely make this annual challenge for ourselves, and we will be aiming to do something even bigger and better next year. Hopefully the money will keep people coming to the centre. There's so many ways this can support our wonderful community. 
In Coventry, 500 people begin to lose their sight every year. The run was part of a campaign by CRCB and 28 other national sight loss charities inviting people to take on 250 to represent the number of people who begin to lose their sight in the UK each day. Participants chose activities including baking, knitting, running, walking or dancing and completing 250 laps or repetitions. Coventry Council is spending £13 million to increase its stock of houses for homeless families amid a sharp rise in need across the city. The City Council announced plans last March to buy 50 houses each with three or more bedrooms, for use as temporary accommodation. Since then, the number of homeless families with three or four children has more than doubled from 83 to 210. One of the Council's more recent purchases is a former House of Multiple Occupancy, HMO, on Golson Road in the city centre. Councillor David Welsh Cabinet Member for Housing and Communities suggested that without the scheme, families face being housed outside Coventry or in B&Bs. He said, this is great news and provides one of the largest properties for families who may otherwise have to be housed outside the city or in bed and breakfast accommodation. Councillor Welsh said feedback from tenants of the council's new properties had been really positive and the transformation of the Golson Road home had been incredible. He also claimed the project will have benefits for communities which have a lot of HMOs, as the council will buy these types of properties where possible. It's going to make a positive difference to neighbourhoods that are dominated by HMOs, he said. The city council said the scheme will bring initial savings of £176,000 per year. The authorities spent £5 million on temporary accommodation from April 2021 to 2, according to a Freedom of Information request published last month. As of last December, there were 750 homeless households in the city, and of these there were more than 450 families, including at least 674 children. Some four-fifths, 78%, were housed in private accommodation, the FOI revealed, but less than 2% were in B&Bs. Comte City Council owns a small number of properties which are used for temporary accommodation. We also use accommodation which is owned by a registered provider, the response said. Outlook News Thanks there to Elaine, my co-newsreader. Um, i give you some lighting up times. This week uh, it'll be light by 7am and it's dusk by 17.41. That's 20 minutes to 6pm. And we've got Hugh in the studio now with News from the Resource Centre. Thank you very much. 
Well, it's nippy outside, isn't it? Mm. But, you know, it's like it's like about ten degrees warmer in Scotland. It's not often it goes that way, is it? Anyway, let's hope for a bit more warmer weather soon. Uh, we have uh, got some new stuff in stock. I mean, it's new stuff that m- many of you will seen before, perhaps. Uh, we have a um, a bunch of new uh, talking watches um, available. Um, these range really from about 25 to about 45 or so pounds. Uh, so if you need a new watch, do come in um, and talk to us. We've got a good wide range in at the moment, um, and it's uh, definitely worth having a look. Um, now, you'll remember last year that King's Audio, which made the uh, little boom boxes, the black ones, uh, went into administration. And alas, they don't make their rather nice little units anymore. Um, there has been a little scurry around um, by other um, organisations to find something to replace those. Um, and we now have two of those replacement ideas in stock. One is the Communiplayer from RNIB. Um, if you've, you might, some of you may have a Communiclock, which is a, uh, it's quite a nice little talking uh, clock without a face that you just press the button on top um, to uh, get you tell the time. Well, it's a similar sort of box, um, different colours with a USB port in it, um, not in a particularly obvious place, I don't think, um, and um, a stop and pause, a start and pause button on the top with some other, other little button, bot- buttons around. And it's quite, it's all right, you know, it's a bit plasticky, but it's fine. Um, and, but that's £35. Uh, so that's available. These are all cheaper than the old uh, uh, King's Audio units were, but um, the quality is definitely not the same um, as as the as the old ones, um, and then if you like tiny little things, um, there is a uh, a USB media player from Cobalt Systems, uh, which is twenty two pounds. So it's a m- much much better price, and literally this box is what an inch and a half cubed. <laughs> so it's tiny little thing, oh. and not only is it a USB player, it is also a radio. I think I'd keep losing it. With, <laughs> with, a, with an aerial. Oh. So I, I don't know how they squeeze it all into there. But a retractable aerial. A retractable aerial, yeah. And um, actually, you know, it's, it, and the sound quality is really quite amazing. It does have quite tiny buttons on the front, but mm. it, but there are only four, so you can sort of work out what they are. Um, and it's actually quite a nice little unit, um, and uh, it's definitely pocket-sized, so you can keep it in your pocket quite easily. Um, mm. uh, you'd need to, because as Stella suggested, it might be quite easy yeah, to get lost. But, um, yeah. But you know there are other ways of doing that. You can uh, you know just make sure that you put it put it down in the right place or put it on a high contrast background or something like that. But anyway, uh, t- at twenty two pounds though it's quite good, so definitely worth having a look at that. Uh, we're still waiting on our grant application. I keep on. Want- I really want to tell you about what what we want, what we're going to do or want to do. And as soon as we get uh, hopefully a positive. Um, positive reaction from the uh, from the council and the local NHS commissioning board uh, we've got some terrific things to tell you so it's all sort of a bit holding holding pattern at the moment they were supposed to have let us know um, a week ago last Friday and then again last Tuesday um, and here we are you know a week and a day after that still waiting so 
Anyway, hopefully, hopefully next week we'll have something to tell you on that. We're also hoping um, to get a newer minibus uh, uh, quite soon, um, which is one that uh, has belonged to the Enterprise Club. In place of? Uh, yes, we're going to replace the uh, the smaller Renault first to start with. Uh, because is that that's the brown one? Or the yes, the brown one, because <laughs> that's getting very long in the tooth. Uh, we are looking at replacing the, the larger one as well with uh, something a bit more suitable, uh, but it's... Uh, it's not necessarily an easy process. But anyway, this mm-hmm. newer minibus hopefully will get fairly soon. Um, we did say, <laughs> we're a little bit concerned about security at the moment. There's a, um, um, a charity called uh, TWAM, Tools with a Mission, yes. that moves over to yes. uh, rugby. And um, somebody nicked the mm-hmm. whole engine and the front bit of their minibus mm-hmm. or van. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it's an extraordinary thing. They just, you know... It, looks like somebody's taken a huge great big bit out of the nose mm-hmm. of this van so uh, we're going to park, park ours very close to a wall mm-hmm. <laughs> I think so it's not easy to do um, uh, just to let you know that Rosie is going to be uh, taking some time off uh, for a bit so she'll be back in a few weeks so uh, expect not to see her around for a little while um, Covid uh, is making is rearing its ugly head again. Uh, we've had somebody uh, call in um, this week uh, who was in the centre uh, who's uh, uh, tested positive for COVID. Um, if you're coming in, uh, the people who who were with him um, have uh, have been told. Um, if you are feeling at all unwell with COVID-like symptoms, and sometimes it's hard to remember what those are unless you've had it, uh, I suppose, and then you probably remember very well then uh, don't come in. If you think that you might have it, um, when you come, if you do sort of come in and you're feeling unwell, you can get somebody here to test you. We'll ask you to wear a mask and you know, we'll get all PPE'd up and everything to do that. So, um, yeah, but so if you feel that you need a test, then do talk to us. Um, the Creative Writing Group are going to be uh, taking part in um, the Springboard Festival at the Criterion um, at the end of March. So this is going to be an opportunity, it's a whole evening of, um, of uh, new writing from the Creative Writing Group. Um, it'll be performed as it has been before by actors from the Criterion, of which me, it has to be said on this occasion as well, um, and hopefully one or two members of the uh, Creative Writing Group themselves. So that'll be, that's a new thing that we'll have uh, people People performing their Sounds own work really on good. stage. Yeah, we'll keep you keep you posted on the date. I think it's the last full week of March when when that happens. Um, we've been on the been on the radio and in the media quite a lot in the last uh, last few weeks. Uh, Chris and Claire, who's you mm-hmm. know terrific uh, efforts in terms of the uh, their, their challenge two fifty. Uh, generated nearly £2,000 for us. Well, the, the Observer came and did a nice big photo in the front, uh, which was uh, in the Observer this week. So uh, you can probably have a look on that. There's a link on the, on our Facebook page um, for that. Uh, and then I was on I was on BBC Coventry in Warwickshire this morning, actually, with Phil Upton's show. Um, apparently people are parking on pavements quite a lot, and they yeah. wanted to know how that affected people with visual impairments. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I did my little canvassing of various people, they said it's vans more than anything, and particularly wing mirrors that get you, mm. uh, because you, you know whether you've got a cane or a or a guide dog, you know, which will tell you you know what's going around on the floor and everything. A wing mirror, you know, can always be a bit of a surprise. And of course, um, we heard the very sad news on Monday about um, Sheila Monk's passing. Sheila was 
a fantastic person who supported Rosie and Tricia um, in the early days of the centre and has supported me so many times um, over the last what, 10, 12 more or more years and uh, she's going to be so missed by everybody here at the centre always so reliable at um, our, our garden party events and the winter warmer you know she was she was the the, the raffle person the raffle mm-hmm. go-to person for the longest time and uh, you know she was a very wise lady and you know she would uh, you know often come and come with suggestions to me that were you know invariably good she also was the person um, who nominated us uh, for the uh, Queen's Award for Voluntary Service, which we were very pleased to receive back in 2018. So, you know, we will miss her terribly and remember her with great affection. Um, and we wish David and his family all the best, you know, in, at this difficult time. So on that uh, slightly sad note, um, we will leave it there for this week. Thank you very much, Hugh. And now here's Sarah with this week's sport. Outlook Sport. Well, hello there, listeners, and welcome to this week's sport. Now, I want to start with a confession. I am a sportaholic. Yes, but you realised that already, didn't you? And particularly those of you who come to the IT group. Anyway, I realised how much of a sportaholic I am. When, shall we just say, there was a certain rugby match on Saturday which involved England who lost. And I felt sick for the rest of the day. I couldn't watch watch the result on the news. Couldn't watch anything. It's a bit like when England lose to Germany at football, but let's be honest, folks. That's just normality. So, anyway, moving on, keeping local. On Saturday in the Championship Cup, Coventry Rugby Club entertained Doncaster at Butts Park and ran out 42 points to 12 winners. Now, make no mistake, Doncaster are not normally, shall we say, somewhat of a walkover and have often been one of our bogey teams. But this time, we were superb. However, one team that wasn't as superb, roll it back to Friday night, Coventry City took on West Bromwich Albion at the Hawthorns. In other words, the ground of West Brom. They scored after 15 minutes. And then, shall I just say, the rest of the match was pretty much boring. Well, it was boring. The most frustrating thing was that Jokeres came so close to scoring. And he had, on one occasion, a real sitter, which should have gone straight in the net. But he just somehow seems to have lost his scoring ability at the moment. I mean, we have got Gustavo Hamer, who's pretty brilliant, particularly at corners. But, you know, 
hey-ho, but as Peter from my IT group said today, yes, but one player shouldn't make a team. And no, they shouldn't. But both in our league and in the Premiership, there sure are some teams that need a bit of a kick up the backside. Now I confess, when we go to the non-league clubs, other than the conference clubs, who I know are the lowest of the low, I don't know the pecking order between Southern Premier, Northern Premier, etc. So the order I give you the results in is just whatever takes my fancy. Anyway, at the weekend, Nuneaton won away at Old Church one goal to three. Well done, Nuneaton, and I gather you're near the top of your league. I think you're in the southern, but it could be the northern. Who cares? Meanwhile, Bedworth played Corby and drew one goal all. Stratford played Elkington at home and also drew one all. Now, that was an interesting match. Interesting in that I heard some of the results on the radio, wrote it down, Elkington, checked on their Facebook page, which had not been updated at that stage, but back screened and it said, tomorrow's match is against Elkington. But then a bit later they posted, and today's man of the match for our match against Leighton Town was... At which point I'm thinking, well, was it Elkington or Leighton? But fortunately, somebody else commented and put, and I thought I'd been watching Elkington. So just to repeat that, Stratford versus Elkington, one goal all. However, the misery for poor old Leamington continues, I'm afraid. They lost against Blythe Spartan who, well, should we just say, I think a bottom of their table, and the radio said, are a pretty poor side. So I'm afraid, Lemington, unless you do something rapid, you is going to be for your drop. Oh, and the score there was Lemington nil, Blythe Spartans one. In the conference, you know, them at the best, at the bottom. There were wins for Racing Club Warwick and for Rugby Town. Indeed, Rugby beat my favourite name team, God Manchester. Seven goals to one. That is pretty good. However, Coventry United lost three goals to one. They were away to Coggenhurst, who I confess I have never heard of. Coventry Sphinx also lost two goals to one. And Coventry United women lost one goal to nil away to Charlton Athletic. Hey-ho, a very mixed weekend. Meanwhile, a roundup of sport, well, I would say that doesn't involve balls, but the first one certainly does, that is tennis. Great Britain took on Colombia in the qualifier for the final of the Davis Cup and ran out 3-1-1. One, 
winners. Now, very often in the early rounds, you don't see the top players turn up. But they were all there. Dan Evans, Cameron Norrie and Neil Skopinski, who played in the doubles with Dan Evans. So, well done, guys. And yes, Andy Murray, your mum sent a sick note and we understand. Now, have you heard of Zoe Atkins? You know, the world champion runner-up. No, you haven't. Well, as I sort of said, not only did she win the gold in the European Championships earlier this week, but she's now taken a silver in the World Championships. Her sport? Freestyle skiing. Yes, that's the one where they sort of aim themselves at a little ramp and flip upside down and do loads of twists and turns and tumbles and hope not to come down with a broken neck or leg or collarbone or something that goes snap in the night. Anyway, now whilst we're talking about winter sports, the pièce de résistance must go to Great Britain's men's team who took silver in the World Championships. Now, to put it in perspective, the last medal they won in the men's bob fall was in 1939. Yes, 84 years ago. So I doubt many of our listeners really remember that that clearly. Anyway, you may remember when I described all the winter sports last year when the Winter Olympics were on. The four-man bob is the one where the four of them start holding this shuttle-like object, run like heck for about 50 metres on ice, but they've got spiked shoes. And then one at a time, starting with the driver at the front, they all jump in very quickly, and then the one at the back shuts the gate so they don't all fall out to the back of the bob. And then basically they got a rudder-like concoction on the floor to steer, but they mostly steer by leaning from one side to the other, and they go down at ridiculously high speeds for about a mile on ice. Hmm, yes, well, if it was left to me, it would be more than 84 years before we had another gold medal at that sport. Now, I want to finish before I do my am finally spot with a bit of a moan. You may have heard about the transfer window in football. Well, literally, it opens and it closes, and the January one closed on January the 31st. The amount of money the Premiership clubs are spending on one player is quite ridiculous. Chelsea have just smashed the British record by spending £120 million on one player. Just think what you could do with that amount of money. 
I mean, I don't wish him any harm by any manner of means, but he could do his cruciate ligament in his first match. Anyway, my now and finally. While I was flicking through the BBC website looking at my favourite sports, I was looking at athletics and it it said that Laura Muir, you know, the Scots lass, competes for Britain, obviously, had opened her season with a win in the 3,000 metres. So well done, Laura. However, (laughs) there was a lot of time and media coverage spent on how she took a season out to finish her qualification as a vet. Now, me having been brought up on watching a lot of James Herriot when, shall we say, a mere youngster, has only one vision of vets, and that is on their hands and knees, with their hands stuck somewhere rather unmentionable up cows. I can't watch an interview with Laura without imagining her. But anyway, guys, that is your sport. Oh, can I just say a quick hello to Julia? who I had the pleasure of re-meeting today at the centre. Turns out me and Julia go back quite a long time. And also Jean of the farm. There you are, girls. Got it out. And that really is your sport. Many thanks, Sarah. And now over to Dave with your postbag. This is Postbag. Hello there, welcome to your postbag this week. Last week we heard from a new member of the Monday Club, Angela, talking about playing golf. This week she talks about bowls. Yep, well that's another game I've played for 40 odd years. But here you're playing short mass. Yeah. And I never was any good at short mass. You have to be so delicate with the way you play it. And nobody can blame me for being... I'm not delicate as a person. I can whack things, but um, not go very gently. So, yeah. uh, But when we go outside, I'm hoping to do a bit better. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Do you have help in, in pointing uh, in the right direction? I can see the man who waves at the bottom. So yeah. I know where the jack is, more or less, where his feet are going to be. Yes. So that's... But I, I couldn't... I can't see the other woods that are on there now you see so I don't know if I can get round them or not because I don't see them okay but but it's fun yeah I enjoy it yeah thank you Angela there has been invitations to go along to bowling sessions for visually impaired people announced on Outlook I'm sure the resource centre will point you in their direction if you inquire Julia tells you about a game that she plays open the gateway it's bingo time I went to the gateway on Monday and my friend Sally came with me Sally is a very good friend so is Wendy the warden we decided to have a flutter we bought a book of bingo cards and guess who's won Wendy the Warden won two games and Sally won three. What do you think of that? They had so much money that had to threaten to send my friend John round to sort them out, so they shared the money with me. 
So now I'm a bit rich, but I'm not sharing my money with anybody. It's mine, all mine, and I'm keeping it. Later at the gateway, we had a cup of tea and a mint chocolate biscuit. Then we won the raffle, and Wendy the warden and I won another eight pounds each. The bingo sheets had coloured sheets. Poor people could buy black and white books, but me and Wendy the Warden were rich, so we had coloured ones. This week I will go to the Monday Club and buy my friend Eva a drink and a biscuit. But not my friend John there. He can whistle. Julia, thank you, Julia. I'm glad you had a successful evening. Tell us what clubs you belong to and follow Julia's example. I'm really grateful, Julia as I'm sure a lot of listeners are for your uh, entertaining reports each week. Fantastic. And now we hear from Linda in Barbados. Wow! And she's going to tell you about a visit to Freedom Park from the perspective of being a blind person. Now, uh, Freedom Park, Barbados, in Bridgetown, was opened on the 29th of November 2021 on the eve of Barbados becoming a republic. Yeah, I just remembered, um, just recently I was able to visit a newly opened park, it's called Freedom Park. It's in it's in Bridgetown, which is the capital city. And there you can go there there are let's see, things that from the old times, like relics that you can touch, the old travel houses, the old windows, <laughs> you know, like how the houses long before you have those windows that you push out and then they will have the like the flaps, you know, that you can open up. But they were all made out of wood. And you were able to touch. Actually, a guy came over and said to the lady that was with myself, my friend, um, oh, um, they're not supposed to be touching the things. But I said, so don't he, doesn't he see us with a cane? So we obviously can't see. So you have to touch it. So we just went right ahead. And, but, um, yeah, and it, it was so, it was interesting to be able to go and actually view, well, view in an inverted commas with your hands. Something like that, because it was, you know, so many things that you didn't know about all the, just the old tools and like a wash tub and things that you never would have seen in back in the day, obviously, because I mean, those are things that were before my time. So it was very, it was very nice. So that was like, and then there are benches around that you can sit and have a picnic lunch or something like that. Yeah, so it was really fun. Now, Alinda belongs to VIP World Community, and I, I join their Zoom sessions most Wednesdays from uh, 12 noon to 1 p.m., and I chat to people around the world, and it is absolutely lovely. And, but I, uh, I was invited to join the VIP World Community Zoom sessions because during lockdown, Graham uh, had a lovely idea for us to make a, a video that's called uh, Lockdown Music Interviews to let vision impaired people know what great entertainment that there was on Facebook Live uh, from entertainers around the world. There was uh, A.J. McLovely in Aberdeen, a singer, and there was Jojo with her bedroom boogies in Grimsby, and there was us, of course, <laughs> Graham myself, entertaining from Graham's bedroom. And so uh, 
I, I sent these, this uh, video off to various uh, VIP groups and the one that responded, the only one that responded was VIP World Community and they, and they invited me to join their weekly Zoom sessions. And it's been absolutely lovely because I'm 24 hour care of my wife, you see, and it's helped a lot too. Incidentally, it's seriously ill at the moment. And right, anyway, so but we're cheering up, we're moving on to another member of the Monday Club, that's Tina, and she tells you about the pop gig she's been to. In 2004, I went to Warwick Castle to see Donny Osmond. And in 2014, I went to Birmingham to see the Bay City Rollers. And in 2017, went to see Susie Quattro. Same place in Birmingham, and David Essex was there. Well, thank you, Tina, for offering to record your memories most Mondays for postbag at the Monday Club. Before the Monday Club last Monday, receptionist Heather showed me two new boomboxes. They were both cube-shaped, the most tactile being about three inches by three. You plug the memory stick in the back. It has a big round yellow button on the top to switch on and direction indicators and volume control wheel at the front. That's £35, and there's a smaller one for £22 about one and a half inches by one and a half and you plug the memory stick in the top there is an on off switch in the bottom right hand corner which will need a sharp fingernail to switch it on and off and there's four little buttons along the, the front which were extremely small but tactile uh, but that's got a radio as well you may not need that but both have excellent sound quality they really have I demonstrated it demonstrated both of them at the Monday Club and I'm sure that Heather will show you how to use them and that's all from Postbag like last week only Julia sent a message into Postbag which is wonderful other but if you want the spot to continue you know what to do because it's a really it's a really wonderful spot for communication uh, I mean it's, it's done a lot for me just talking to you in fact I've needed it each week because I'll tell you what before I started recording this week's post back from home where I care for my wife I received a phone call from the doctor telling me and she went in hospital yesterday and, and she, she, was, she was saying how serious my wife's condition is and that's really I'm really upset about that so uh, thank you very much indeed for your friendship and support and incidentally when I asked Sheila what, what was her favourite spot on the tape she said sport <laughs> so well done to Sarah there you, you make it really interesting for people who aren't interested in sport and that's quite an achievement thank you very much uh, thank you very much and that's all, all from Postbag and uh, please let's hear from you next time bye for now this is Outlook you can contact Postbag our website is www.talkingnewspaper.org.uk our email address is postbag at talkingnewspaper.org.uk join in the discussion on Postbag
Thank you, Dave, for this week's postbag. Uh, this is an opportunity for me to uh, say to Dave and to his family, to Graham and Paul and all the rest of his family, this, to uh, our sympathies on the sad news of Sheila's death last uh, Saturday. As I'm sure most of you knew, Sheila she had a stroke a few months back, uh, and since then she has been somewhat incapacitated, but has been fighting valiantly, uh, but unfortunately... Uh, that uh, fight came to an end last Saturday and she passed, passed away quietly in hospital. So our sympathies from all, all of us here at uh, Comedy Talk newspaper go to uh, Dave and his family. And now on with the programme and here's Stella. This next piece, read by Margaret, is about the Lichgate Cottages, those ancient buildings alongside Holy Trinity Church. Listeners, I used to work in one. Tell you later. A modern plaque on Lynchgate Cottages states they were built in the spring of 1415 and were part of the forecourt of Coventry Priory. Coventry's late archaeologist, Margaret Rylett, believed this to be wrong. The building is known to have been built from reused timbers and this dating is based on six test samples. There are problems with this theory. The three-storey building range stands on brick barrel-vaulted cellars that appear to date to the 17th century. In addition, the building stands four metres higher than the level of the Priory Forecourt. It also stands on the edge of the West Tower, which was demolished in 1648, and to have domestic houses on the forecourt makes little sense as the area was walled with its own gate, creating a secure area. A drawing by Smith in 1576 shows the West Towers of St Mary's Priory still standing. One small section can still be seen today. A great portrait of these ruins was removed and cottages were built on part of this along with a house upon the spot where the transepts met beneath the great central tower and gardens formed between them. The Trinity Deeds of 1650 make it clear when and who built them and says Whereas the west part of the ruins of the Cathedral Church of St Mary in this city that was demolished in the reign of Henry VIII had been made use of by butchers to keep hogs in. The city this year gave to Mr John Bryan, Vicar of Trinity, a grant thereof from the city and built a dwelling house for himself called Tower House over against the lane between the two churchyards where formerly a steeple stood belonging to the said cathedral, the cross aisles going over there. He also made dwelling houses on the bottom of the two steeples that were on both sides of the entrance into the priory from the butcher row and cleansed the ground of the ruins and converted it to gardens. Brian seemed to have used old timbers for these buildings, mainly from the churchyard for the Holy Trinity Church Warden's account for 1644 proves they were there. It reads, 
payments for taking down diverse houses and buildings without Bishopsgate and Spongate and bringing the tiles and timber into Trinity Church. These items were for reuse and no doubt some came from the building dated 1415. Records show some houses dismantled outside the gates were rebuilt in nearby new buildings, like in the Spon Street townscape. Many timbered buildings literally had their beams numbered so the carpenters could see where they fitted. The cottages were private residences up until 1937 when the council acquired them. In 1997-8 they were restored and in 2016 they were given to the historic Coventry Trust who have now fully restored them. Yes, at one time the cottages were home to some council departments including the Tourist Information Centre where I worked part-time. Picturesque, yes, but not an easy working environment with its spiral staircase. And now, somewhere else I've worked in my time, Carnegie Libraries. This is part two of a piece read by Bill. Carnegie spent more than £46 million on libraries alone. It is often referred to as the patron saint of libraries. In the UK, it is believed to have funded some 660. Carnegie called his formula for giving Gospel of Wealth. He believed philanthropy was not a gift, it was a moral and ethical responsibility. A town had to prove it could fund staffing, books and running of the library before he would pay for the building. He also insisted on two things. The library contained a children's section and a reading room with a full range of newspapers and journals so people could stay abreast of current affairs. Carnegie believed you shouldn't be spoon-fed, says Sharon. You had to get off your bum and walk into a library to become enlightened. Of my doorway, there is a sign that says, Let there be light. This was Carnegie's motto. For 30 years I have worked in Carnegie's first public library in the world. I have learned something new every day. At the opening of his third library in Pittsburgh, he directed his speech to the assembled working men. He told them, I know you would rather see more money distributed to you in the form of higher wages. If I had paid you more money in your paycheck, you might have bought a better cut of meat or drink. You need a library, a museum, a concert hall. That is what raises working man. At the time of Carnegie's death, in 1919, aged 84, he had given away 90% of his fortune. In today's money, staggering, £250 million. Pounds. No one comes close to the scale of Carnegie's philanthropy. Not even Microsoft billionaire Bill Gates or his former wife Melinda. His legacy also goes beyond libraries, Sharon insists. Through the Carnegie Corporation of New York, established in 1911, his philanthropy ultimately also funded nuclear disarmament, helped the discovery of insulin, and even gave us Sesame Street. 
That is some legacy. It was years ahead of his time. One wonders what Carnegie would make of the closure today of so many of the libraries he endowed. The child literacy at an all-time low, he would be shocked at the sneaky way many of his libraries have been closed down despite the promises made, says Laura Swaffield from National Charity Library Campaign. Many children now don't have access to a public library. Since 2010, around 800 libraries in the UK, more than one in five, have either closed or been handed to volunteers to run. Or his own library in Herne Hill, South London, a handsome Carnegie building, twice fought off closures through the forming of a local Friends of Carnegie library group. He says, we were determined to sell off our beautiful grade two listed library. We have to keep sharp, never grow complacent. Library is always under threat, yet it is unique. It's the only place you can go that is safe, warm, welcoming, non-denominational, and you don't have to buy anything. You can ask a librarian a question, and you will get the best, most reliable, trustworthy information he or she can find. It's the huge benefit that you can't put a price on. National Green Library also recently had a reprieve from cuts and closures, and last month celebrated its centenary by recreating the photo taken on its opening 100 years ago, cementing its status as a much-loved, valued community space. As the autumn sun dipped behind the rooftops, a nearby lamppost flickered into life. You will often find lampposts located near Carnegie Library's Aunt Sharon, because Andrew Carnegie felt it was a subtle reminder that libraries offer enlightenment. Coventry had three libraries built with money from Andrew Carnegie, Earlston, Stoke and Falsill. I started at Earlston back in 1963, my first job. I date back a long way, but not so far as the Coventry Society for the Blind. Elaine will explain. The Coventry Society for the Blind was founded in 1878 by a few Coventry citizens when there were only about eight known blind people in the city. By 1946, the society was helping up to 250 people. After being assessed by a home visitor, they received financial help to retrain or find new employment. Examples of the work they did were brush making and light basketry, or they could set up their own business such as wood chopping or by using a flat knitting machine. Financial help was also given for hospital appointments and treatment, dentures, hearing aids, glasses, artificial eyes, clothes and a wireless licence. Some people had a holiday at a home in Bournemouth, possibly owned by the National League for the Blind. Days out were arranged to places like Evesham and Trentham Gardens. The society was supported by the Midlands Society for Blind Welfare. The society officials met in the Deacon's Vestry in White Road Church. 
With the increasing number of blind people, it was decided to purchase a property to be a residential home. In 1946, the Society bought number 50 Hollyhead Road, formerly St Faith's Shelter. It was to be known as the Rose Stainer Home for Blind Women. Mrs Rose Stainer was the honorary secretary from 1917 to 1949. Blind women who had lost their home through enemy action were to be given first consideration. The first residents moved in in May 1947. They paid 35 shillings, or £1.75, per week, plus laundry. A matron and a cook lived in. The home was officially opened by Lady Herbert on June the 17th. Just two years later, by February 1949, there was a need for a home for blind men. It was decided to look for a larger property to move the women to, so that men could live in Hollyhead Road. In November 1949, Hampton, number 157 Warwick Road, which is opposite Top Green, was bought at auction for £4,000 plus £55 for fittings, etc. It needed a lot of work, and it wasn't until 16 months later, in March 1951, that the women were able to move. It was officially opened by Lady Lee on the 16th of May. There were 17 residents. The Hollyhead Road home was then for men. Six years later, in 1957, Hollyhead Road came under the city's redevelopment scheme, meaning the society had to look for a new property, not urgently, because it was in 1960 that 15 Earlsdon Avenue South, which is on the corner of Warwick Avenue, was purchased for £4,750. The men moved there the following May. A club room was built at the rear of the garden in 1966, which was also used by a social club for the blind, which was meeting at the Cybury Hall at Warwick Road Church. Road widening plans in 1963 meant that Hampton's front garden would be reduced. It was decided to look for somewhere with a larger back garden in a quieter area. A Hampton resident, Mrs Brooks, had died after being knocked down while out on her daily walk. Her niece, Mrs Shotton, gave the society a gift of £3,000 in memory of her aunt, which was to go towards the purchase of a more suitable property. Committee members were shown round Boston Lodge in March on 1964. The owner, Mr Farley, sold it to them in July. He would rent the flat attached to Boston Lodge at the end where the shop is now and a small sitting room for his daughter and the four garages. The move from Hampton took place in October 1964. Hampton was sold to the corporation for £6,500. The minute books recorded the usual day-to-day -day events. It was noted that the central heating in Boston Lodge was much appreciated. A new spin dryer was bought, and the men's home needed a new fridge. The housemaid asked for a pay rise. 
she was on four pounds five shillings per week and it was increased to five pounds. The gardener also asked for a rise. He was on seven pounds per month and wanted ten. The committee agreed, but his work would then include the gardens at both homes and odd jobs. A vehicle accidentally damaged the oil pipe to the tank at Boston Lodge, which resulted in the loss of 500 gallons of oil and very probably the central heating. The person responsible was not traced and the fire brigade were called to hose the oil from the driveway. There was a serious gas explosion in the kitchen due to a leak building up in the oven. The matron was slightly injured. Windows were blown out and damage caused to a tea trolley and the crockery. By 1974, there were 600 registered blind in the city, all of whom received £1.50 at Christmas from the society. This was increased to £2 in 1975, but discontinued by 1977. Plans were in place in 1975 for an extension at Boston Lodge so that the men could move there. This was completed in 1977 and the men moved down the road. The 100th birthday of the society was celebrated in 1978 with an evening party. Boston Lodge, at the time the minute books finished, was doing well. Further information has not come to hand, but we do know that it was taken over by Sense, the national charity at some point, until 2004, when registration was transferred to a private care service provider. A lot more has happened there since then, and, in due course, this information may be pulled together to make another chapter. Elaine there with the history of Coventry Society for the Blind. I certainly never knew its origins were way back in the 19th century. And now we're going back again as far as 1900 and a great flood in our city. For many, New Year's Day morning is never the most inviting time, but for Coventry inhabitants in 1900 it took new depths, with a great flood enveloping the city centre and beyond. The Lake Weather Station have on file that the wettest day on record in Coventry was the 31st of December 1900, when some 72.3 millimetres of rain fell. This heavy rain caused the River Sherbourne and the Swanswell Pool to overflow their banks and cause chaos. Commentators of the day report that houses in Hale Street took the brunt, calling it a lake, but they appear to have overlooked St John's Church in Fleet Street. One of the most popular attractions in this beautiful church is the brass plate that boasts the sombre proclamation. This plate marks the height of the water which flooded this church on December the 31st, 1900. It is some five feet high, which gives some idea of the damage caused by the rain, the intensity peaking between midnight and 1am in the morning. Newspaper reports claim people tried to go on with their business, but St John's was a mess, with prayer books, kneelers and much more bombing up and down Fleet Street and Spon Street. 
the then rector of St. John's, the Reverend A. Gossage Robinson, 1865-1956, to was later in the day forced to report to the press that due to great damage to the fittings and furnishings, he was forced to close the church. Obituaries for Reverend Robinson after his death in the 1950s noted that he was extremely distressed because he could do little to help the parish. There had been one recorded fatality, a man in Hill Street drowned trying to flee from his home on New Year's Day, but Robinson felt that there were more not reported as linked to the flood, particularly as there was little help for families stuck in their houses for several days. In the resulting inquiry into this tragedy, this point was highlighted. That church closure lasted seven weeks, and services were held in double shifts at the new mission church at St Saviour at Spon End. Once the water subsided, it became apparent that some of the fittings were beyond repair, and the organ was rendered practically useless. Church assessed costs of £1,100, but local historians have all noted that subsequent restoration revealed longer-term damage. Mary Dormer Harris called it a disastrous flood for the church, but notes that the Reverend Robinson was very active in restoring the church back to some kind of normality. The footage to this tragic tale is that the St. John's oft-told story that when the architect Sir Gilbert Scott and his family were brought in to restore St. John's in the 1860s and 1870s, the church PCC wanted them to raise the floor by some four feet. They were mindful of Coventry's recent history of floods, 1852, 1862 and 3, and 1875. The alleged response was to advise them to save their money, as the chances of a flood, in their view, were minimal. Keith there talking about the water damage to St John's Church all those years ago. I must go and look at the brass plate showing the height of the flood water sometime. Let's now go over to Sarah, who is investigating the IT group at the Resource Centre. Today I'm at the Resource Centre with... John England, and apologies in advance for any interruptions, but the Monday Club are all trooping through. So, John, what brings you to the Resource Centre? I've been coming here for 23 years now. And why? why? Um, because that's when we started the, uh, the classes. Right. It's so before the millennium. So what do you actually do when you're here? It's computer workshops. It's not classes. We don't do, um, strictly speaking, we don't do lessons. Yeah. We have a workshop where we'll sit with people and help them to use computers doing whatever it is they want to do. So some want to write letters, others want to uh, trace their family tree or do the weekly shopping, and we provide people who can help with all those things. So you're the tutor here, are you? Um, well, well, I've been here longer than 
So what sort of equipment and computers do you have? We've just got ordinary computers, but we've got them with large screens, so the display can be bigger. Yeah. And uh, we do have a few with um, specialist programs on them as well, but most are just ordinary programs that you can get at home. Right, and I think I've seen somebody reading some letters on some sort of screen. We've got some magnifiers as well, yeah. Right. So uh, if you get a letter from the bank manager, you can put it under the magnifier and it will um, make it large and you can change the colours, black on white or yellow on black or whatever, right. whatever suits your, your eyes. So there's really a reason for everybody sitting at home thinking, oh, IT, computers, not my bag, to come along and have a go. You don't have to do anything, that's the point. You, you, you're here to do what you want to do. We don't make you start off by learning your alphabet backwards or anything daft like that. Right. We'll, we'll just show you any tricks of the trade if it if they're going to be useful. But if they're not, you can sit there with somebody else all typed for you and do everything on the computer for you. You don't need to do anything. Um, so yeah, there should be no reason why people shouldn't take advantage of the fact that we live in a digital world now. Yeah. Thanks, John. Okay. So now I'm here talking to a few of our customers or clients or users who come to the IT group. So first of all, Katie, why do you come? Well, I come because I've been coming a long time, but I come because I. Um, I'm here to sort of mix with meet friends and just use different devices, such as iPads. It's just just learn things and just being with just being with people. That's why they've come into this group and particularly to all the classes at the resource centre here. Well, that's fantastic. And now I'm talking to Philip. Why uh, why do you come? Oh, uh, I, I come for several reasons. Uh, I, I come to uh, have a break from the, from my flat to change of environment, and I, I like to talk talk to people and chat over a cup of tea, and, uh, and I, I like to use the computers because my, my computer at home is very old; it's about uh, eight, fourteen years old, and uh, so I like to be able to use a more modern computer. Uh, I believe you use a specific package, don't you? Yes, there's a. I used to use one called Speech Reader called JAWS, which uh, stands for Job Access with Speech. But when that became out of date, there was a free one available called NVDA, which is not non-visual de de desktop access. Uh, so I, I use that, and that's very similar to the old JAWS program. Uh, so all the shortcuts are virtually the same. There's not, not really much, much much difference between them. So I'm, I'm an expert on that. I sort of taught, taught myself all the all the, uh, the commands and the tabs through the menus and things like that. Gosh! And I, I'm hoping one day for somebody to show me how to do online shopping because I I don't like relying on just the carers to do my shopping. Yeah. So I haven't plucked up the courage yet because I like 
I like to just mess around on, on YouTube and BBC iPlayer at the moment. But. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, 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 sorry, Sarah. Um, can I just say, um, coming back to me, I, I also, I'm also, a big, um, I, um, I actually use the same software at home, and it's it's the best thing I've ever learned. Anyway, no, I have you. a laptop, and I've it, so NVDA myself. So right. it's fabulous. It's, it's, it's uh, so I love the fact it's free, and if you want to put updates on it, it's completely free. There's no charge. So it's fabulous. And now I'm talking to Gemma. So same question to you, Gemma. Why do you come here? Well, I like to come because I like to interact with people and distract people. And I also like to come and learn new skills and computers because I have access to a computer at home. And I also use the speech package NDVA as well. Right. So that sounds a really good package. I have to say, I've looked at it. But I'm sort of thinking I'll learn it one day when I've got time. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, to be fair, it's quite easy to use. Once you've got the basics, it's quite easy to use. Right, that's my challenge. <laughs> and what about you, young Andrew? I'll come, I'll, Andrew? I'm saying it, really. I'll come to interact with people, have a chat, and get some uh, like help and advice researching, like I've done this morning with free, freezers, washing machines, etc., etc. <laughs> Right, and I believe also you check your emails. Yeah, I check my emails. Get get rid of all the junk. Get empty my junk folder. Get all the all the junk emails about need. Right, and do you you use Magnify? At the moment, at the moment, yeah. But at some point, we might have to turn to speech. Right. Same same mobile phone, really. But I've got to speak to guy about that. So there you are, folks. What's stopping you? Just have a word with Heather and book yourself onto one of the sessions. They're Monday and Thursday, 10 till 12. And Tuesday, what time is this? 1 till 3. 1 till 3. And John makes a smashing cup of tea or coffee before the session begins. And sometimes we get biscuits. Sarah speaking to John England of the IT Group and some of the users who benefit from its equipment, help and advice, and the chance to socialise. And now here's Ali with a short story entitled The Cat and the Trifle. I want to put on record that my mum used to make the best sherry trifle in the world. It was delicious, and one bowl of it was never enough. However, she only made it on special occasions, and Christmas was one of those occasions. She had this beautiful cut glass bowl which had a silver rim around it, and it was massive. This meant mega portions of trifle for us. One particular year, my mum really pushed the boat out for Christmas. We weren't well off as a family, but mum made sure that Christmas was good, and we never lacked in the present department, and the food she made for us morning, noon and night was everything you'd hoped for in a Yuletide feast. We all ate our Christmas dinner, turkey and all the trimmings, and made sure that we left some space for Mum's amazing trifle, and the pudding did not disappoint. The sponge, the jelly, the blancmange, the fruit, the sherry, and the cream topped off with hundreds and thousands was so good that my mouth is watering just thinking about it. After all the dinner plates had been cleared away, My mum disappeared into the kitchen and came back a few minutes later with this massive bowl of goodness. You could tell how proud she was because she was grinning from ear to ear. 
My dad's eyes popped out of his head when he saw it, and immediately held up his bowl in an Oliver sort of way. He absolutely adored her trifle, so he made sure he had the lion's share of it. Needless to say, it didn't take long for all of us to demolish our bowls. Not even Mr Creosote could have eaten anything else. So Mum took the bowl away and put it in the kitchen, and we all went back into the living room to slob out for the rest of the day. I think there was either a James Bond film on or The Wizard of Oz. It usually is. And we all seemed to fall asleep one by one for a few good hours. Not even the prospect of a family game of Newmarket could drag us off our respective chairs. We were all well and truly stuffed. Several hours had passed and it was time for Mum to start thinking about getting tea sorted. We usually had turkey sandwiches with other buffet items and then finished off the rest of the trifle, which again we were all looking forward to. I did offer to help, but she said I was more of a hindrance than a help, so she told me to stay where I was. She left the room, and a minute or so later, she called me in and asked if I could come and assist. I was surprised as she hated anyone getting in her way. However, when I entered the kitchen, my mum was standing there with a look of horror on her face. No, horror is a wrong word. Terror would be correct. My dad was known for having a short fuse, and if he didn't get what he wanted, we would usually be on the receiving end of his wrath and the look on my mum's face made me think that something bad was coming our way. What on earth's the matter, mum? I was getting worried by this time. She stared at me, and slowly pointed her finger towards the kitchen table, and there was Smokey, the family cat, with her head firmly in the bowl of trifle, having licked off the entire layer of cream. Why wasn't the bowl in the fridge? because I forgot was my mum's reply. I was meaning to do it, but I just never got round to it. I started to giggle nervously, because I knew that Dad would be expecting another bowl of trifle with his tea, but half of it was now in the cat. Mum was in a blind panic, wondering what she was going to do to explain it. I was more concerned about what my dad would do to the cat should he find out, but then I had a brainwave. Do you have any cream left, Mum? I've got a whole pot, why? Have an idea. I took the cat from the table and put her outside with a piece of turkey and then went into the fridge to get the spare pot of cream. I got the bowl of trifle and placed it on the work surface and started to replace the layer of catnap cream. You can't do that, said Mum. We can't serve up trifle, not after the cat's had it. What's the alternative, Mum? You know what Dad's like and how angry he'll be if he doesn't get his trifle. Christmas Day or no Christmas Day, trust me. Mum tried her best to get me to change my mind, but I was like a woman possessed. I spooned out the cream and put a new layer on top. I didn't make it look too neat, as this bowl had already had several scoops taken out of it, so I layered the cream in such a way that it looked authentic. I found the hundreds and thousands and sprinkled a few of them as well, and it looked perfect, in fact, good enough to eat again. Mum laid the table in the front room with the buffet and the star attraction of the Christmas trifle slap bang in the middle. Before she called my dad into the room, we asked my brother and sister to come into the kitchen on the pretense of helping to carry in some of the stuff. But what we really did was to tell them to avoid the trifle, and when we told them why, 
they were more than happy to oblige. Mum called my dad in and we all followed and took our plates and filled them up with the finger buffet. Dad saw the trifle and did a mock licking of his lips when he saw it. He turned round to me and said, You know, your mum makes the best trifle in the world. After we'd eaten all the sandwiches, my dad took it upon himself to start serving up the trifle. And much to his surprise, none of us wanted any. He was greeted by a chance of, Oh, well, I couldn't eat another thing, or Don't really fancy any tonight, and I think I'll have a couple of satsumas instead. My dad took his bowl and filled it up to the brim with trifle. He couldn't believe his luck that it was all for him and started tucking in it with a look on the face like the cat who'd got the cream. Little did my dad know that the cat already had. That just about brings us to the end of this edition of Outlook, brought to you this week by me, Stella Roberts. <laughs>